Welcome to Heard About, the podcast about the biggest moments in communications with the people who were behind them. I'm your host, Winston Chang. Racially motivated violence is always in the news, but this past year it feels like everything's been dialed up a notch for Black and Asian American communities in particular. So, on today's episode, I'm interpreting the phrase biggest moments in communications from a slightly different angle. Instead of talking about a big news story, speech, commercial, or sports team we've all heard about, we're talking about something we all hear every single day, the voices of other people. The fact of the matter is, is that Americans should be among the most accepting people on earth as far as linguistic diversity is concerned, but that's not the case. There's a great deal of linguistic bias in this country and my work helps to expose that and at the same time is intended to help us overcome that form of discrimination and bias. Today, we're talking about something called linguistic profiling. And who better to talk about the subject than the person who did the first research about it? Hello, my name is John Baugh. I'm the Margaret Bush Wilson Professor in Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis and I am a linguist. And just in case you were wondering what this guy's credentials are. I was able to get my PhD in linguistics at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. I began teaching at Swarthmore College. From there, went to the University of Texas at Austin for 10 years. From there, I spent most of my career at Stanford University, where I was jointly between education and linguistics. And I moved to St. Louis in 2005 when I became director of African and African-American studies on that campus. So today we're talking with Dr. John Ba, who coined the term linguistic profiling. We'll talk to Dr. Ba about what exactly linguistic profiling is, how he experienced it himself as a black man, and how his first experiments involved talking to people in different accents. Then we'll spend some time examining how linguistic profiling and bias play a role in recent anti-Asian hate crimes in this country. And finally, Dr. Ball will tell us about some positive change he's seen as a result of research like his, what he thinks needs to happen next, and what we can all do to help. So, let's begin. Good morning, Dr. Ba. Thanks for joining us. For those of us who are less initiated on the topic, could you just give us a, a quick, you know, explain like I'm five definition of what exactly linguistics is? Uh, absolutely. Linguistics is the science that tries to determine what all human languages have in common. And so uh, many people, quite understandably, uh, would ask whether or not a linguist is someone who speaks several languages. And that's not the case. There, there are many professional linguists who are monolingual, but we know a great deal about how different languages work. And so every spoken language has a sound system, which we call its phonology. Every spoken language and sign language as well has a grammatical structure which is the sequence in which meaningful units are put together. 
Uh, every language has semantics, meaningful components. And so whereas, you know, Japanese, Italian, and Korean are mutually unintelligible, they all share those building blocks that I described, and linguists are concerned with that. Um, linguistics, because of the work that we do with human language, allows us to also work in fields like artificial intelligence, and then to take some of our theoretical abstractions and to use them for voice recognition in some instances, or to write computer code. And that's a language of a sort as well. Mm -hmm. If there is one application of linguistics right now in 2021 that excites you the most, if you could only pick one, what would that application be? It would be my work, which uh, I find quite fascinating. So I'm most famous for something that's called linguistic profiling. And linguistic profiling asks the question, is it possible to discriminate against a person sight unseen, just hearing their voice over the telephone? In other words, if you answer the phone and you don't recognize the caller, are you drawing enough inferences about that person? Is it a man? Is it a woman? Is it a child? Is it an adult? Or for the purposes of a lot of the work that I look at, are they a member of a minority group? And if they are, do they speak with a stereotypical accent? And if they do, might they be the victim of discrimination that could take place over the telephone? And the answer is yes. The trick is, how do you prove that in a court of law? So there are a lot of fascinating branches of linguistics. I happen to be very fortunate to be working on one that I find very exciting and more importantly, the work I do is potentially beneficial to people who are discriminated against. And very often, these are people who don't have equal opportunities in society. Now, Dr. Bob, I understand that you started this research on linguistic profiling uh, back when you first received that opportunity at Stanford, you mentioned that earlier and you moved to the Bay Area. So could you walk us through your first exposure um, to, to the idea? Yeah. So you're hearing my voice right now. The vast majority of people who don't know me and hear my voice don't realize that I'm African-American. Right. I, I sound like what I am, which is a professor. And that's understandable. And the vast majority of well-established professors who are native speakers of English, be that here in the United States or in Great Britain, um, it's often difficult to detect their racial backgrounds. And so I uh, moved up to the Bay Area uh, to to uh, join a think tank, the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences. And that was gonna be a one-year assignment for me. And uh, I had grown up in Los Angeles, as I mentioned, and I decided that I would be commuting between San Francisco and LA, where my wife and children would be staying in my parents' home, which was quite large. And after a couple of weeks, we decided that we really wanted my family to relocate to the Bay Area. 
And so I began to call around to ask if I could see different apartments or rental houses. And in every instance, I was told, yes, please come. But in a few instances, when I showed up in person, um, the landlords said that uh, the property was no longer available. Um, In no case did they say, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I didn't realize that you were African-American and we don't rent to African-Americans. In every instance, they found some excuse for why they couldn't rent to me. But I was under the impression that they simply didn't assume that I was African-American when they heard my voice on the phone. And once they saw that I was African-American in person, they made up some other excuse. And so even though colleagues of mine who were professors of law said, oh, you probably have the basis of a lawsuit. I decided to engage in some research and do some experiments. Um, I grew up in inner city Los Angeles in a neighborhood that was composed of a lot of different immigrant and minority populations. And so many of my classmates were fellow African-Americans But I also had classmates that were Mexican-American, classmates whose ancestors came from Japan and China. And one of the things that I did as a child was I would often mimic the dialects of my classmates. And as an African-American, I would style shift. And so in the experiments that I did, I would call prospective landlords, and I always used the phrase, hello. I'm calling about the apartment you have advertised in the paper. But in ensuing phone calls, well, actually, the way that it worked, I either would call using an African-American dialect, long calling about the apartment you have advertised in the paper, or a Chicano dialect, a Mexican-American dialect, long calling about the apartment you have advertised in the paper. And I would toss a coin and call using one of those two voices randomly. And then, you know, after either no less than three hours and probably no more than two days, I would call back and use my professional voice. And whenever I got a pattern that was the black dialect was told it wasn't available, the the Mexican-American dialect was told it wasn't available, but my professional standard English dialect was told, yes, the apartment is available. I had unearthed linguistic profiling. After Dr. Baugh made those phone calls in 1988, his work and the concept of linguistic profiling went mainstream. Just listen to this public service announcement put out by a group including the Department of Housing and Urban Development in 2003. Uh, hello. Uh, yes. Can I ask a few questions about the apartment on Park Street? What was your name? My name. Uh, my name is Juan Hernandez. It's been rented. Oh, it's gone. Hello. My name is Sanjay Kumar. I am calling about the apartment on Park Street. It's not available. Not available. Hello. My name is Tyrone Washington. I'm calling about the apartment on Park Street. Just been rented. Hello, I am Chen Ling. My name is Khalid Bin Ali. I'm Tuan Vo. Hello, my name is Moshe Goldberg. I use a wheelchair. It's gone. Not available. All right. Thank you. Yes, hello, my name is Graham Wellington. I'm calling about the apartment for rent on Park Street. Is that still available? Yes, it is. 
It is? Yes. Really? Housing discrimination is illegal. If you think you've been a victim because of your race, color, national origin, sex, religion, disability, or family status, call us. Fair housing. It's not an option. It's the law. Uh, so, Dr. Ba, where else do we see examples of linguistic profiling outside of housing? You see it in nearly any domain where someone might seek goods or services by phone. But where it shows up quite significantly uh, is when people are looking for employment. When you're looking for a job, it is potentially hugely impactful. And also the experiments that I did were focused primarily on stereotypes based on race that's detected through speech. We actually did some other experiments that showed bias against professional, well-educated white women. And this was one where a position was being advertised uh, for a vice president within one of the larger banks, national banks. And women who called asking about the job were routinely told that it wasn't available, whereas men who called about the job were told that it was available. We also have evidence of discrimination based on stereotypes about sexual orientation. And so um, men who may be openly gay and whose speech patterns are, are uh, associated with some of the stereotypes associated with openly gay male speech have uh, talked to me about the fact that they sometimes feel that opportunities are closed to them based on stereotypes about their sexual orientation. We have evidence that um, speakers who are are transgender, uh, both male to female and female to male transitions, often feel that their voices are um, potentially problematic with respect to uh, that transition process. So linguistic profiling is different than racial profiling in a huge way because it, depending upon how a person's voice, what a person's voice conveys, they can be discriminated in a, against in a variety of ways that far exceed just racial discrimination. Um, I'm curious about this. Has any research been done about kind of the relative strength of linguistic profiling and other kinds of profiling? So for instance, if I look at you um, and I can see you know, your face, or I can see the way you're dressed. And I can also hear your voice. Um, has any research been done about, you know, how, how they'll interplay with each other and, and what the, in the aggregate impression of you uh, I'll get would be? Yes, there has been important research done by a professor at Stanford in communication his last name is Iyengar. I don't remember exactly how to spell it, but he did a really interesting set of experiments where he had a software program. And I think the easiest thing that your listeners would be able to relate it to uh, 
would be Photoshop, right? And essentially, he had a software program that allowed a person to map a voice onto different racial faces, right? And so what he did with those particular experiments was he would play a person's voice and it would look like it was coming out of a face that had brown skin. Um, And he could manipulate it so that that same voice was coming out of a face that had blonde hair and blue eyes and light skin. And people were judged differently based on their physical racial appearance that actually influenced people's impressions about the relative clarity of someone's speech or whether or not they thought the person spoke with an accent. So yes, yeah, so Professor Iyengar's studies, which expanded upon you know some of the work that I did, because he raised the very question that you just came up with, which is, well, my experiments were based on the telephone exclusively, where you can't see the person. You know, what happens when you combine the voice with, you know, the appearance and the beauty of his experiment was it was the same voice. Right. So that was just a a wonderful demonstration that people were clearly engaging in racial bias because the voice didn't change. I'm Chinese American, and as you know, people who look like me and my parents have been in the news a lot lately. Fighting back against hate, support is growing for the AAPI community after a rise in attacks on Asians and Asian Americans during the pandemic. Hate crime legislation aimed at combating anti-Asian violence easily advanced through the U.S. Senate on Wednesday. And in this country, what should be a celebratory time coincides with a disturbing surge of racist attacks against Asian Americans. Um, for Asian Americans in particular, I'm curious to know, is there any research done about Asian Americans' accents and uh, the impacts of their accents on how people perceive them in terms of intelligence and discrimination against them and and things like that? Yes, there is. Uh, One of the leading sociolinguists who has studied that is uh, Elaine uh, Chow, um, Elaine Chow, and she is a professor at the University of South Carolina. She happens to be in their English department. There's another professor uh, who was trained at Stanford who is now at the University of Edinburgh. Her name is Lauren Hall Liu. And both of them have pointed out two things that generically and broadly defined that there is a lot of discrimination against um, people of Asian descent for whom English is not their mother tongue. But they also point out that the Asian American population is tremendously diverse. Even among Chinese Americans, you have Chinese Americans from Taiwan, you have Chinese Americans whose ancestors spoke Putanwa. You have Chinese Americans who are from Hong Kong, whose ancestors speak Cantonese. So even if you're just looking at Chinese Americans, there's a tremendous amount of linguistic diversity. That's not to mention those 
from Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Indonesia, uh, as well as whether or not people want to include uh, the Filipino population within that. So it's been informative that recent horrific atrocities against Asian Americans have alerted the broader population to the acronym AAPI, right? Um, you know, many before these horrible attacks recently, many Americans who are not of Asian descent and who don't know Asians didn't even realize that AAPI existed. But if you're well acquainted with those communities, you know that Pacific Islanders and people of Asian descent represent a very diverse cultural population. And if you listen carefully, um, someone who is of Hmong ancestry, who's learning to speak English, sounds very different than someone who is of Vietnamese ancestry. And, you know, and I haven't even mentioned the Japanese who were interned during World War II. Right. I mean, you know, those were American citizens that were put away in concentration camps, allegedly for their own protection. Uh, yet the, the I didn't see any comparable thing putting German citizens in concentration camps for their protection. So what's different? Uh, what exactly are the conclusions that people draw when they hear Asian American accents, broadly speaking, of course, um, not just that they all sound the same, so they don't recognize the diversity. Is it that they're perceived as unintelligent or incompetent? What What are the characterizations um, that people easily make? Right. So um, your question is in many ways well-framed, and I recognize that what you're seeking to address has to do with stereotypes that are evoked when someone hears a person of Asian ancestry who is probably not a native speaker of English, right? Um, but that's very different than a person, a person of Asian descent who may be fourth generation who, if you heard them on the telephone, you would not know they were Asian. And those individuals are often asked, despite their fluency in mainstream standard English, where are you from? Hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And if they say Houston, people say, no, 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 where are you really from? Right. And that's a gloss for where did your ancestors come from? Very few European Americans get a comparable, or you know, share a comparable experience. You know, um, you know, I, I have no idea. If, you know, and I don't want to pick on the former president too much, but he was very visible, and he often referred to African nations as shithole countries, right? And I think he you know, inadvertently spoke for many who devalue 
nations outside of the United States, and especially nations south of the equator, where the vast majority of people of color live. And when you focus on Asian Americans in particular, there is an unfortunate stereotype of being what's called the model minorities, right? And why were Asian Americans given that label? Well, I think the answer to that lies in at least two areas. One, they tried their best to live the American dream through traditional American values, which are if you come here from some other country, you work hard, you play by the rules, you obey the law, and you try to fit in. Right. And fit in doesn't mean that you don't run a Chinese restaurant, but rather that you conduct your business professionally, you try to make a profit, and you make a good living for your family. Right. But culturally, what's different about Asian cultures as opposed to a lot of the other cultures is a history of honorifics within the in the society. Right. Um, Asian cultures, whether it be Japanese or Chinese or Vietnamese or Cambodian, is one where respect for elders is strongly embedded. Mm -hmm. And that tradition of honorifics, when it came to the United States, for many non-Asians, was interpreted as meekness and weakness. And that's unfortunate. And yet you see it play out in these attacks, right? You see these poor elderly Asians, you know, elderly people can't defend themselves no matter what race they are. But you don't see people walking up to the elderly white people and slamming them to the concrete, right? So the racism that still exists, that that in some ways can't be explained because you know, you're not seeing Asian populations that are, you know, trying to overthrow the government. Asian populations have always tried their best to, you know, survive in the face of discrimination. One of the things that I greatly admire in different parts of the country are, are is the existence of Chinatowns, right? Chinatowns throughout the United States provide culturally supportive enclaves where people of Chinese ancestry can conduct business, may be able to speak Chinese, uh, can, you know, uh, engage in business and conversation with like-minded individuals who share a similar cultural ancestry. And, oh, by the way, they can do a lot of business with tourists that go to restaurants and shop in Chinatowns throughout the country, right? And so, to me, as an American, I think Chinatowns are a good thing, right? Um, Yet, Chinatowns are also subject to attack, right? They, they, They symbolize something that's great about America, And for those who are xenophobic, 
they represent something that they dislike. And it's paradoxical. In many respects, it's un-American to see the attacks that we've seen. And yet we see them and they are persisting. Mm-hmm. Your comment about Chinatowns, which I appreciate, made me think about something, not so much a question as it is an observation. There's this tension on the one side, people who are saying, and and I find that a lot of these are, are folks who are immigrants, like my, my parents' generation, um, it's a it's about assimilation, right? You fit in. You came to America to pursue the American dream, as you you mentioned, Doctor Ba, and so that means you learn English, you learn the ways, you learn the culture, and then you see a on the other side of the spectrum, kind of counterswing against that, which is um, I want to be proud of my of my Asian heritage, whether Chinese American heritage, Taiwanese, you know, whatever it is, and and so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna change the way I dress. I'm going to bring this, you know, smelly food to to my school and eat it proudly, you know, instead of asking for a PB&J for lunch every day, you know, those kinds of things. And uh, and why should I be ashamed? And, and I kind of see this it seems like, you know, sometimes diametrically opposed right. to schools of thought. Right. No, that's a very interesting observation. And and I also think that what you're describing, while particularly uh, evident from the standpoint of the existence of Chinatowns also can be found in Korea towns. And one of the things that I found fascinating among some of the uh, Korean PhD students that I worked with uh, both at Stanford and at the University of Texas was they divided into two interesting groups. One group had no intention of going back to Korea. They were a group that decided their future would lie in the United States and they would do their best to try to fit in. The other group had every intention of going back to Korea. They loved Korea and they wanted to not only, you know, they wanted an American education, but they wanted to be able to use those skills in growing the Korea that we see today, right? Uh, Korea has evolved, South Korea, of course, has evolved in a way that it's an economic engine in Asia and is now spreading K-pop and other iconic cultural phenomena that, instills pride in Korea in extraordinary ways. And I remember being fascinated by an argument that two of my Korean doctoral students were having. And one was with uh, uh, a family that was going back. And they made a point of saying that they speak to their children in Korean every day, and that they also made sure that they talk to their grandparents on the telephone so that they wouldn't forget their Korean and their honorifics. And the other fellow said, you know, you're so right. When my mother came here from Korea and my children didn't speak Korean with enough fluency to use the proper honorifics, she was horrified. He said, but I still love America because I can eat bacon every day. (laughs) 
you seen any reform or change as a result of the research that you and others in your field have pioneered as a result of linguistic profiling research? One of the fields where we see um, the greatest influence has to do with some work that's been done by one of my linguistic colleagues who is a professor emeritus at the University of California at San Diego. And her name is Ana Celia Zentea. And Ana Celia observed that linguistic profiling often happens in American workplaces where members of minority groups um, speak a language other than English. And so she observed in San Diego that there were many employers who insisted on English being the only language spoken in the workplace, and they penalized Spanish speakers who were speaking Spanish on their lunch breaks, right? And so her work has led to some policy recommendations that uh, are more egalitarian and saying, you know, as part of your First Amendment right, you should be able to speak any language you want, especially if it's not related to your job. And so speaking to a fellow coworker in your mother tongue should not lead to uh, any kind of sanction or punishment by your employer. And so there's one instance where, you know, greater linguistic tolerance in the workplace uh, was advanced as a direct result of her work. Um, and, and where do you feel like we still need to go? Uh, so, so you're seeing some of these first steps being taken in the workplace. Uh, where, right. where do you hope we'll see the next steps being taken? Thank you for that question. I think it's very important. And I want to answer it by emphasizing two different things. Um, there is an industry that makes a great deal of money by telling immigrants to the United States that they can help them get rid of their accent, right? And you can speak like a real American. We can help you get rid of your accent. The implication there is that the person that speaks with an accent is somehow doing something wrong. But the fact of the matter is, is that the United States is a nation of immigrants. For almost every group that's come here, with the possible exception of those who trace their ancestry to England, that first generation, no matter what their race, as they were learning English, they spoke with an accent that people devalued. The Swedish, the Norwegians, the the Italians, the Germans, the Poles, the Japanese, the Koreans, those from South America and Central America, all experienced linguistic discrimination. And I'm saying nothing about the Native American languages that have disappeared as a result of the displacement of those populations, right? So that's on the one hand. On the second hand, to any listener who lives with the false impression that they don't speak with an accent, 
I would appeal to them to do their very best to be accepting of others whose linguistic backgrounds are different from their own. And the examples that I would use are Henry Kissinger and Arnold Schwarzenegger. If Henry Kissinger can be Secretary of State with his accent, and if Arnold Schwarzenegger can be Governor of California with his accent, then there's no reason that people of Mexican or Chinese or Japanese ancestry can't speak with an accent as well. That's really helpful. So to kind of bring it home, Dr. Bao, you kind of touched on this actually in your last answer, but what is some practical advice that you might have for for getting there, for being more tolerant, as you said, and dealing with our own biases as, you know, position people in positions of power, especially, you know, landlords or employers, people making um, hiring decisions, the, the, those kinds of those kinds of folks. What's your advice for us? My my hope for the future is that we move that we're more accepting of people from diverse backgrounds, not just the way they speak, but the honest and true recognition that the strength of the United States lies in our diversity. The fact that most Americans trace their ancestry to all parts of the world is what makes this country special. And I want to close on a more positive note because we've talked about the downsides of linguistic profiling, but there's actually a positive dimension to it as well. And that's when linguistic profiling allows you to identify someone who's a kindred spirit, who may share a similar cultural background. Um, If you find yourself almost alone in a place that is not your home, and you hear someone who sounds like you, there's an affinity, there's a comfort, you know, with that. And linguistic profiling actually cuts both ways. It can be used to hurt you, but it can also be used as a way to find those who are similar to yourself. And I would hope that in, in a true egalitarian way that Americans provide equal opportunities no matter what a person's linguistic background is. Yeah. Well, Dr. Baugh, I, I, I know that we've taken a bit more of your time than we anticipated. So thank you so much for, for joining us for this. Well, and hey amen. I want to thank you for your vision. I've done a lot of interviews. You're good. And thank you for including me in this important work. That was Dr. John Baugh, currently a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, a linguist, and the founder of the field of study related to linguistic profiling. I don't know if you could hear it in my conversation with him, but talking to a guy like Dr. Baugh makes you really feel seen. 
And I don't think it's just because he's super smart and has been studying this stuff for decades, though that's part of it. It's more like he's the kind of person who tries to understand you, who's curious about your experience, who really puts himself in your shoes. So I really enjoy talking with him, and I hope you enjoy tuning in. As always, thank you so much for listening to and supporting this podcast. This has been your host, Winston Chang. Until next time.